This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I am joined by Alex Golbin, who is the Chief Data Officer for Morningstar out in the US. Uh, Alex, based in New York. Thank you very much for joining us, Alex. Kyle, thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. No problem. Um, Look, really excited about kind of today's topic and obviously understanding a bit more around your thoughts on on what that is. But I guess before we get into that, can you give us a, a brief introduction into your background and I guess your journey so far? Uh, sure, I'll be happy to. And I'm probably giving up my age by uh, going through <laughs> my journey. But uh, I did start as a technologist, actually. My, my um, a formal education is engineering and computer science. I was a software developer for a number of years, and then I entered the world of finance through Lehman Brothers in the early to mid-90s. And um, again, started as a technologist, moved into fixed income research in um, mid to late 90s, and uh, over the years uh, became responsible for large chunks of Lehman family of indices. So uh, Lehman Aggregate, which then became Barclays Aggregate, which is now known as Bloomberg Aggregate. I was uh, at the early days of building a lot of those index products. And um, I had that job for about uh, 12 years. Uh, In 2005, I had a uh, quick, about six months journey into Bank of America Securities where I worked in the trading floor and I worked in credit strategy. And then I joined BlackRock in 2005 and uh, spent about 14 and a half years at BlackRock, uh, growing my responsibilities uh, into... um, data modeling, portfolio analytics, portfolio reporting, risk analysis, client reporting, uh, supporting both BlackRock asset management business, but also a large and growing uh, technology arm or risk management arm called Aladdin. And uh, for the last year plus, I have been uh, Chief Data Officer at Morningstar. So a new chapter in my career. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Thank you very much for, for that insight. So obviously our audience is literally based all over the world. I was having a look at this only the other day, and we've got people based in New Zealand and Australia, India, all across Europe, obviously the US and Canada, the UK. So for those of us that aren't as familiar with Morningstar as mm-hmm. some of our US counterparts might be, can you just give us a bit of information about uh, Morningstar, the business, who you are, what it does, so forth and so on, please? Uh, sure. So the roots of uh, the company really go back to late 80s. And uh, the Morningstar was founded on the premise of empowering investors, regular individual investors with the same quality and velocity of data and richness of information that's generally available and uh, have been privileged of institutional investors. So uh, most people probably are familiar with Morningstar fund research. Yeah. You'd probably see like Morningstar ratings, the three star, the four star, the five star rating. That's the uh, sort of like original Morningstar research that sta- started with uh, with funds, moved into fundamental equities, 
And then as uh, financial markets had grown and advanced and became more complicated and our businesses became more global, so was the business of, uh, of Morningstar. So uh, we are a pretty big player in the private equity data. We have a fairly significant technology and software business. Morningstar Direct is probably a product that many people uh, see referenced in, uh, in the press. We have a rating agency, DBRS, uh, very big in Canada and actually quite a significant player in um, securitized markets like commercial mortgages and asset backs. We have recently acquired a company called Sustainalytics, and that gets us uh, really um, uh, into the uh, notion of sustainability investment and ESG. It's one of the leading providers of ESG research all over the world. And uh, the, the business is getting um, more complicated and our investors are becoming more sophisticated. We're growing our index business uh, quite significantly. And we also have presence in investment management and retirement business. So some of the retirement record keepers key, um, uh, use Morningstar model portfolios as the way to lead their investors through their 401k re, uh, retirement planning. So it's kind of like, it's it's a, it's a, had grown a quite large, but uh, the focus on empowering investors continues to be the North Star of the company. Thank you for that. Yeah, it makes, uh, makes sense. I guess in terms of your role within the business, then obviously Chief Data Officer, um, give us a bit of insight into that role and I guess mm-hmm. you know what your, what your aims are and where you sit within the organization. Uh, I've never had that role before. <laughs> and um, and my understanding is, and one of the reasons I actually like this role is I felt that it will be whatever I make of that role, mm-hmm. unlike some other better defined roles like, you know, chief operating officer, chief technology officer, or chief, you know, information security officer, which come with a pretty well-defined job description, uh, CDO is almost like a blank slate. So the way I define my role and the way I see the value I can hopefully bring to the organization is I'll uh, classify as that free the data. So my job is to facilitate easy, free, and frictionless flow of data from uh, data producers or those who actually have data to data consumers, to those who need data and who need content. And not only facilitate the flow, but facilitate constant data enrichment, creating new content out of data, and that content then becomes in turn data as input into somebody else's content creation. So created that circle of data throughout the organization, essentially creating like an interstate highway that allows consumers and producers get in and out easily and exchange and connect disparate data sets in a way that uh, empowers them to create their content. So time will show, but that's really my focus. No, that's great. I love the analogy of the interstate or the motorway, as we call it here in the UK. Right, yeah. Get getting getting in and out. Yeah, that's uh, no, that's that's interesting. Okay, so I guess moving into the the kind of meat of today's topic then around how you know businesses and um, you in your role is kind of connecting data and business together to to obtain I guess maximum value. Obviously, that's a notion that is popularly discussed and how it's imperative that you must connect the two in order to you know generate real business value um as with a lot of things in our industry i feel like it's often talked about an awful lot and as with a lot of things it's easier said than done um but i guess in your opinion where's the starting point you know if you were to kind of advise people on look this is what you need to be thinking about what's what's the starting point for you 
Uh, so I'll probably start with a little uh, story from my career because usually I learn my lessons and I try to uh, <laughs> generalize on my yeah. lessons. So years ago in the height of financial crisis, we were providing a number of uh, enterprise level risk and analytics reports. And uh, one of the uh, large reinsurance companies, uh, CFO, went in front of the board and presented them on the on the firm's positioning with respect to um, credit losses and delinquencies in their book of business. They used my information and my reports to present to the board and the information was wrong. So I embarrassed the chief financial officer in front of the board and made him look like he didn't know what he was talking about. So. For me, that was a tremendous lesson learned is you always start with your clients. You understand what clients do with the data that you provide to them, and you understand what I call moments that matter. As an example, if the chief information officer at a pension fund hires an asset manager, they go to their board and they go, I hire asset manager A to replace asset manager B because I believe asset manager A will deliver whatever is that they need to deliver, better risk, uh, return profile, uh, uh, better, better performance, you name it. Now, on the quarterly basis, that chief information officer has to show the board and has to show their management that they've made a brilliant decision. Essentially, they put their career on the line and they have to represent this data to the board. Somebody has to give them the data. Understanding what people do with the information you give them whose career is on the line, understand that there are like people behind this generic notion of clients is really important. So I don't think there is a substitute in to doing my job well and to doing my team's job well with, to understanding and walking in our client's shoes. There are multiple ways to do that. You don't necessarily have to do client visits. You don't necessarily have to be on every client call but you have to dig yourself from underneath all that technology conversation. And first and foremost, understand who your clients are. Are you working with insurance clients? What business they're in? What are they doing day in, day out? What if you're working with asset managers? They're waking up every morning in cold sweat over what? And how can you help them to wake up in a slightly less of a panic attack? If you're dealing with wealth advisors, what are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to build relationship with their retail client. They need to look smart. How can we help both advisors to look smart in front of our clients? Clients want to be smart. They want to look smart. They want to feel smart. They need to be empowered to look smart. Data and information is the way to make them look smart. So for me, it always starts with moments that matter. Understand what matters for a specific segment of clients and market that you're serving and go backwards from there. Interesting. Yeah. And so I guess there where you're talking about clients, that's not necessarily end, you know, end user consumers. That could be the people that are going to use your data internally, your colleagues, even your peers to a certain extent. Uh, 100%. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I use the, the word client in a very general term. Sometimes in technology, we call them users. I like clients better because I think it encapsulates the uh, philosophy of why we're yeah. doing certain things. And uh, I really try to focus on uh, why do we need to do X, Y, and Z? What will be the business impact of getting this done? And only then switch to the conversation of how we're going to do it. 
too often, and I'm sure, Kyle, you have seen it, a conversation immediately goes into designing of technology stack or data flow or reducing latency in calculating on-the-fly portfolios, no matter what the conversation is. And the question is, what is the client segment that has been addressed to it? And what is the real problem that we're solving? Uh, is it a uh, real issue or is it perceived? Are you solving something because it's fun or are you solving <laughs> something because it really will move the needle? Okay. So we're talking about anyone that's going to to kind of use that data and really getting under the skin of their problems, their objectives, their challenges, and how you as as a as a CDO and your team and businesses that you know employ the same types of teams to to kind of do the same thing. Pretty much so. At Morningstar, I view myself also almost like an internal service provider to yeah. business teams and to sales teams. At, at BlackRock, also I viewed myself as an internal uh, service provider. I viewed BlackRock portfolio managers and risk managers just as much as a client as I did external clients uh, of Aladdin or BlackRock the asset manager who were you know, purchasing our um, our investments. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. So starting point then is understanding who's using your data and, and what challenges they have that you can help solve, which makes perfect sense. Right. So beyond that then, the next kind of steps in, in, in your kind of your little process, if you want to call it that, what what are the kind of the key considerations to truly connect the data with the with the kind of business initiatives? So so I kind of look at the world uh, in a two sort of like you know simplistic uh, ways. So like, what is data used for? And uh, in my in my simplified way, I define it two ways. We use data to tell the truth, and we use data to predict the future. And uh, generally, you need data to tell the truth in order to play a successful defense. So again, I remember in the days of financial crisis, uh, the running joke has been, in days like today, you can out, outrun the bear, but you can outrun the guy next to you. So when Lehman collapsed in September of 2008, everybody needed to know their exposure to Lehman Brothers. Everybody needed to understand what exposure they have in terms of investments. They hold their stocks, they hold their bonds, they hold their commercial paper but also exposure to Lehman as a counterparty to trades. How many over-the-counter trades do we have with Lehman? How much collateral have we pledged with Lehman that we may never see? How much collateral that Lehman had pledged with us that we may need to seize? And what claims do we have to make to bankruptcy court to recoup as much of our money as possible? So those with the best information those who were able to actually understand their enterprise level exposure to Lehman Brothers, which is incredibly complicated, over 12 hours to 24 hours, were in an infinitely better positions uh, to make their claim to the court than those who took a week, two weeks, or a month, or never were able to figure it out because it's all over the place in different spreadsheets. So plain defense, I view as uh, utilizing data to either reduce your errors, reduce your operating costs, uh, reduce your losses when uh, th th when uh, when market disruptions happen, and uh, basically run a much more efficient organization. And then uh, predicting the future of using data as offense, and that's like you know the fun part in a way of of uh, of uh, maximizing your value of data or monetizing the value of data. And uh, first of all, it starts with perhaps with client service. So I've been uh, sort of like, you know, <laughs> talking about clients quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But 
there is a big difference between satisfying clients and delighting clients with your data and insight. Satisfying clients, in my view, is you don't tick them off. You basically uh, answer questions <laughs> and you explain your errors uh, quickly enough. Delighting clients is when you empower them with information they haven't asked for, but they're so much better off when they actually see that they gave them. It's like It means that you actually understand their business just as, as, as well as they do. Uh, using data to launch new products, understanding where demand is coming from, where are the gaps in the markets, where are the segments that could be addressed, uh, creating market data place, make it easier for people to discover different data sets to feed into their models, to feed into their analysis, to feed into their uh, portfolio construction. And generally, um, connecting the dots uh, to, 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 to uh, create new content. Just, just, uh, and what I mean by that, again, I'll just give you an example. So uh, there have been... Uh, couple of really bad years with fires in uh, in California on the West Coast of the United States. And um, uh, one of the most obvious questions that uh, investors were asking is, what is my exposure? What is my portfolio's exposures to uh, fires in California? For those who have a lot of mortgage-backed securities, houses have been burned, people have been displaced, insurance been paid. Uh, how much of my mortgages will never be paid back to the mortgage-backed securities. So one of the ways years ago, we kind of connected the dots where we looked at the um, map of uh, mail truck delivery. And uh, those zip codes that were shown as no mail delivered, we assumed were the ones impacted by fire enough where postal trucks could not get to those zip codes. So we assumed that those were the zip codes which were impacted by fires. Then we cross-referenced those zip codes to uh, mortgage pools that have exposure to those zip codes, aggregating them up to mortgage-backed securities and calculated sort of like average percentages, uh, respective percentages of mortgage-backed securities into those pools, into those zip codes, which are impacted by fires. So this is like one of the powerful ways when you use data by taking disparate data sets, but sort of connecting them in a way that actually tells the story. And that's what I mean by uh, using data to play offense. So you need to do both, like in any yeah. any any uh, any sport analogy, but um, uh, I, I actually think it's like there is a fun part of st- stuff, and there's just like you know you have to you have to make sure that your business is solid and operational, and it's very hard to do without knowing the truth. I mean, this whole notion around defense and offense, as far as data and analytics goes, as as kind of you know that that conversations just seem to have you know. Sp- spiraled out of, of, of nowhere quite quickly. Not to say that it's not been around for a long time, but now everyone seems to be talking about, about that and um, absolutely agree with, with kind of, you know, the, the, the analogy that, that you make. So, it, you know, defense there, it seems like is making sure you've got your own house in order, you know, the quality is good. You, you know, you're talking about efficiencies, you know, no errors, you know, do, doing all that type of stuff and the offenses, you know, some of the more advanced analytics that can go and innovate to a certain extent, I guess, which is, which is good. I've got a question for yeah. you, then, Alex, because this is something that it, it fascinates me, and I and I, and I ask I ask everyone that I speak to from your side of the pond about this because um, it, it just kind of plays on my mind quite a lot. But the US seems to kind of favour early adoption, so you know the CDO role was in the US 
before it was here in the UK. You know, I think here in the UK, for example, we're still kind of playing catch up. You can probably count on, you know, two hands, the number of CDOs that there are in the UK. Um, and now obviously in the US, we've seen the adoption of the, the CDAO or, you know, some organizations having a split, a CDO and a CAO. Um, so I guess interesting to kind of hear your thoughts um, around why you think that is. And do you think that there's, there's you know, two roles is necessary? Do you think having those two types of people at that level to play defense and offense is, is a kind of, I guess, a good strategy? Uh, so, so <laughs> frankly, I, uh, and I'll be quite honest here, Kyle, I don't quite understand the distinction. And mm. maybe it's just me. But uh, the way I was thinking, uh, and, and I've seen uh, CDAO and CDO, and um, actually my position at Morningstar is CDAO, but it's a mouthful. So uh, yeah. CDO is much easier to, to say. But if I were to guess what CDO traditionally could be is facilitating the flow of data, where CDAO with analytics in the core of it is uh, turning this data into content and, uh, and uh, building uh, data science models and some sort of uh, artificial intelligence machine learning tools to kind of like, you know, expand what data tells you into, into the new dimension. But I actually view it as, as it's a round trip. It's from data to content, back to data. So somebody else's model output becomes somebody else's uh, model input. Uh, so separating the two, separating analytics from data, like I don't quite understand what it will accomplish. So I very much view it as, it's not what it's called, it's what people do, right? So you can call it anything in my view. And also I think like one of the, one of the good tests of how many people do you need in a specific role is, what happens in a time of real crisis? And, uh, and um, you, I've seen throughout my career where like we have this really elaborate sort of like, you know, network of people who you're working with and then real crisis hits and then your instinct kick in and you see who gets in that office or in that conference room to strategize what we're going to do. And it's, uh, or who gets on the call at two o'clock in the morning to figure out what we're going to do and it's a group of people who really enable it to do something. And I think, like you know, again, if uh, you think of a uh, crisis situation like Lehman collapse, and a chief information officer or a chief risk officer of an organization trying to get the most capable people around the table to see what we're going to do, I can't imagine them. It's like you know, we need to get a CDO and CDAO <laughs> in the room. I think yeah. the question is like, we need to get a person who can help us organize all our data to answer our exposure to Lehman within 12 hours. So uh, if one person can do both, great. If it takes two, fair enough. But frankly, I, I think it's more about what people do and the caliber of a person you get versus how many roles you fill. Yeah, no, and, and that makes... Um... That, I mean, that makes complete sense. I guess it's just, it's, it's fascinating to, obviously, um, you know, my perspective is I, I I see so many different organizations and I speak to so many people at, at kind of leadership level and you see so many different types of structures and, you know, th people call things, businesses call certain things, different things and, and so on and so forth. But there's, there's definitely been this trend that, you know, once upon a time, the most senior person within your data analytics function 
looked after everything. Now, whatever you called that, it didn't really right. matter. But you know, mm-hmm. if it was a CDO, they were typically responsible for end-to-end data and analytics, and and that was that. And then obviously, you kind of got this CDAO thing pop up, which again was you know trying to, I guess distinguish some kind of middle ground between we do both uh, and and now you know we have some organizations that have a, a cdo and a cao so you know there's a very distinct line cut between them and you know you're the data officer you're the analytics officer and i guess just you know thinking out loud i've, I've always kind of thought that as I see the benefit because, you know, you might get some people who are really strong at analytics and and, mm-hmm. and that and that makes perfect sense where some people might be stronger on some of the more, you know, data efficiency type stuff that you outlined below, you know, the the accessibility of data, the governance, the security, the quality, so on and so forth. But but ultimately I kind of imagine that by having two people at a very similar level, even though they're on the same journey or, you know, they might be pulling in the same direction, but it could be fragmented, I guess. Right. Um, you know, so it's, it's interesting, but I just, you know, I was keen to hear your thoughts, I guess. And, and, and I think, and I think it's right. And, and I, and I know quite a few very capable organizations that are probably um, leading the rest of us in terms of their data and analytics sophistication. And they don't have formal designation for neither CDO nor CDAO. But the job is getting done, yeah. uh, right? It just uh, they, they they probably call those those roles differently. So from my perspective, I wouldn't get hung up on um, by opening a role with a specific title doesn't magically make your data problems disappear. Yeah, <laughs> it's is defining what the job responsibilities are and finding the best person or persons for that role. Yeah, versus like if if a company has compliance issues. And uh, designating a chief compliance officer in by itself is not going to solve those problems if they don't have the structure and the support to get their and 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 the and the uh, organizational discipline and appetite to make those compliance issues go away. Right. So just creating a role doesn't. Yeah. It's like you know, buying sneakers is not going to make you work out. Right. <laughs> you also need to to put into the effort. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I like that analogy. Okay. So. Moving on then, I guess, in terms of the tools, the tech, the techniques that data professionals kind of employ to connect the organization's data with the business objective as far as, you know, defense and and offense goes, where do you start with all that? And what do you kind of outline as the the, the key things as far as tools and techniques go? So so, uh, if we look at it from the perspective of what are we trying to accomplish? And if we say, well, data is the empowerment or engine for decision-making and for um, business insight, then uh, what are the attributes? It needs to be uh, readily available. It needs to be easily discoverable by people who are not sort of like, you know, computer scientists, and it has to be trusted. Uh, so then what are the um, the forces that go against those requirements? And uh, any sort of like bifurcation of data generally goes the in the direction that's opposite to making data available, discoverable, and flow freely. So uh, duplication of data is also problematic. So I think one of the um, uh, popular and powerful uh, technology platforms that a lot of people have been utilizing, obviously, including us at Morningstar, is uh, structure on a data lake that uh, creates a uh, an ability to solve two problems. 
you need to get data in fast and you need to get data in quickly. And usually they're at odds with each other. So properly structured data lake with a number of zones, which basically moves you along the lines of quick access to uh, questionable, unstructured data from all over the place into getting it more and more understood, cleansed, structured, documented, entitled, and provisioned in a more of a data hub or data warehouse matter. So sort of like merging a data lake and a data warehouse into uh, under one umbrella where you get a lot of stuff in as quickly as possible, and then you worry about what you got later. That mm -hmm. later comes as you enrich it and sort of uh, cleanse it along the journey. But that data lake in by itself, without having the layer of proper analytics that enables people to uh, do data discovery, data analysis, data cleansing. So at Morningstar, we call, the, call it call, uh, core analytics platform. It's basically just a layer of data science tools that allows you to build models. But building models by themselves is not necessarily all that powerful. You can build model in Excel or on a, on a piece of paper. It needs to be run in production. It needs computers. It needs memory, it needs scheduling, it needs diagnostics, it needs operations, it needs all the uh, uh, architecture and infrastructure in order to actually make it happen. So if Data Lake serves as this major data connector, we built analytics platform as the way for people to build model, collaborate on those models, basically connect modelers with production professionals who can actually make those models run and get trained and retrained as new data becomes available, measure precision of those models and sort of like, you know, um, automatically get them retrained with new training sets, uh, data sets and whatnot, uh, get them properly executed in a way that like a large uh, job does not automatically crowd out everything else that the organization has to has to do. So like, you know, this partition and clustering of, of uh, compute capacity, all of that, um, we built into the uh, analytics platform, which is really tied, uh, bolted on to the data lake, which enables people to put stuff in. And then we have a team of people who actually advance those data sets from input to output along what we call like different zones. So we, we call something called a, uh, a drop zone. And that's what it is. You just drop your files. And then we have something called discovery zone. And that's where people can discover what's available. So it's somewhat searchable, but sort of like, you know, use it to your own risk. And then we have something we call canonical zone. And that's supposed to be pure. It's supposed to be trusted. It's supposed to be production quality. And it's the whole journey to get from a draft to canonical. And uh, and again, so like, you know, we, we utilize Data Lake, we utilize cloud for that. So again, I view all those technologies as means to an end, but it seems to be an effective way to create and enable collaboration and data discovery. Yeah, yeah. Now that that makes, um, I mean, that that makes perfect sense and um, really nicely laid laid out, I guess, there for, for for the listener, Alex. So something that you touched on, you mentioned a few times there that again another topic that I'm hearing over and over and over again lately. But the the word of of trust, you know. Um, <laughs> And obviously, you know, a, a big word in all walks of life, but especially when it comes to data, it seems so. Um, but I guess the notion of being able to to trust the outcome or the answer that you've reached, um, you know, it's as I said, it's become a huge talking point. And I guess 
some way, shape or form, probably directly linked to the quality of data. Um, and as you mentioned there, you know, you've got your drop zone where you're dropping it in and you're trying to progress it through. I, I presume on that path, that's part of the the cleanup of making sure the data quality is right and what you've got is is ready for production. But mm. I guess, how do you know when you've arrived at the right answer or trust the answer that you've got? And uh, so, I, I mean, I guess the question is, how do you, you know, define, measure and correct the the, the areas, uh, the, the defects um, that, that you have in order to be able to, to trust that, that outcome? Well, that's an enormously important and <laughs> meaty question, if you will, Kyle. Yeah. And um, I, I can't tell you how many calories people had burned over the years <laughs> in my career, like discussing, debating data quality. And one of the reasons it's so complicated is because people generally struggle to define what quality and what right really means, yet they're incredibly good and spotting when something is wrong. <laughs> so intuitively, you you know when it's wrong, but it's like, you know, defining what makes it right is very, very hard. So what I've been doing in terms of defining dimensions and compartments of what we talk about when we define data quality is creating a bit of a taxonomy of like, you know, what does it really mean? And I'll give you an example. Uh, years ago, I had a conversation with a very large um Japanese bank, where they had a lot of concerns about uh, data quality of information that we're providing. And I didn't quite understand like what's wrong. So they uh, they gave me a whole list of bonds. And it's like, look, all these bonds have incorrect information, registration, whatever the field is. So uh, I took it back. We pulled up all the prospectus for those bonds and compared what we had in our system versus prospectus, which is a legal document, which is the source of truth. And we managed the documents. So I went back to the client and it's like, you know, we are, we're actually in a, in a pretty good shape. Like we reflect the source of truth. Nothing is wrong here. And they said, well, uh, I don't particularly uh, care much about you matching the document. My job is to eliminate cash breaks between me and the trustee. So for me, definition of quality is matching my data with the data that my trustee uses, not matching my data with what's in the document. So unless I, uh, I eliminate cash breaks, data is wrong. So that was like a big aha moment in my mind is that I was defining quality as the notion of accuracy. I'm accurate because I reflect the source of truth. They were defining quality as the notion of consistency. Data is right if my source is consistent with an external source. So that got me onto this journey, journey of defining different dimensions of data quality. And then within which one of those dimensions, how do you measure that you're right? So first and foremost, as the matter of accuracy, quality as the, as the definition of accuracy. And that's in case when you have the source of truth, you can compare to that. Um, a couple of years ago, um, I, was in a, uh, I was on a trip to Tallinn, Estonia on my vacation, and I, I lost my way. I needed to get to the train station. So I ask a random person on the street, it's like, you know, can you point me to the train station? And they point me in the direction, but the guy didn't seem to quite understand what I was asking. So to validate, I ask another person who pointed me in a different direction. And then I ask the third person to get a tiebreaker and he pointed me in the third direction. Now, what do I do? <laughs> in a traditional financial markets, people take the average. If I took the average of those three directions, there is a 0% chance I would find the train station. It wasn't about getting the, the average answer. It was getting the accurate answer. So I don't need three answers. I need one. 
but I need the one that reflects the accuracy, reflects the truth. So that's when I define quality as the definition of accuracy. Then quality as the definition of internal consistency. If I tell you something, and if I give you two conflicting facts in the same sentence, I tell you this particular stock is, uh, is a financial industry. And then the next sentence, I describe it as an industrial stock. It's like, well, you make, make up your mind, right? You're internally inconsistent. You're wrong. As a quality, as a measure of external consistency, what I described, it's like, you know, I need to match my trustee. I need to match my counterparty. I need to match my client. Concurrency or quality as the definition of concurrency or timing. If you look at the portfolio and positions that portfolios are as of three days ago and prices for those positions are as of today, you have a timely, you know, an inconsistency with respect to concurrency and timing, which basically makes your answer questionable. Then you have the notion of historical consistency. Sometimes people look at a time series and say, well, there's a whole bunch of spikes that don't seem to be intuitively explained by what you told me. Something is off. Then there's the uh, data quality with respect to relevance. I can give you perfectly accurate uh, and timely information, except that it's not relevant. So in the, um, in the, like using the US sports analogy, if I'm building statistics for baseball players and I put the uh, column of data that's called field goals and I have a column of zeros, technically I'm correct. Baseball players don't score field goals. But for somebody who is, uh, who is studying baseball statistics, it tells them that I don't really know what I'm talking about because baseball players don't score goals. So uh, when you have relevant data, that is the knock against you with respect to data quality. And then it goes in terms of data timeliness. Like if I'm telling you about the markets today, but I give you information from three years ago, it was probably accurate three years ago, but it's like, you know, you respectfully probably wouldn't care. And then completeness, right? If um, you look at the uh, at the portfolio report and 20% of assets in the portfolio are in the other bucket. So it's like, oh, my exposure to industrials, financial, utilities, and then other. Like, what is other? Like, what do I own 20% that's other? That's an incomplete set of data. So from my perspective, if I take all client concerns about data and compartmentalize them with, are we talking about accuracy, internal consistency, external consistency, historical consistency, concurrency, relevance, that helps me first and foremost understand what is the problem we're trying to solve. And then, so how do I measure number of defects in terms of uh, historical consistency? Then I perhaps like, you know, any uh, deviation of every, any change by more than two standard deviations from historical mean has to be investigated and, return, and, and explained. If I talk about the notion of uh, accuracy, any deviation from the source of document from, from the from the source document will be considered a defect. And then I can measure those defects and I can say like, well, my goal is 99.99% accuracy with respect to deviation from source or 99.9% accuracy as unexplained changes in historical behavior, more than two standard deviations. In lieu of that precision, we can talk about data quality and we can, people will talk past each other and it's going to be terrible client experience because I think my data is perfect and you think it's atrocious and we're both right. That's, I mean, that, that's so interesting to kind of hear you talk through that because, you know, basically what I took from that as someone that's non-technical is that um, it's either accurate or it's subjective. 
<laughs> to a certain extent, right? Um, yeah. Which, which is which is um, which is you know just uh, just mind boggling, I guess. Which, but but yeah. But, no. but but in many but in many cases, uh, you are making up your data. So so when I was uh, um, building index for Lehman Brothers, uh, who is there to prove me wrong? How do you know which bonds should be in the index? Mm. I tell you which bonds are in the index. Like my guess is just as good as yours. <laughs> what do you think is the return of that index? Like you have no, nobody to compare it to. I tell you what the returns of the index are. So the notion of accuracy with respect to me providing that index to you doesn't exist because I am the source of truth. But you can measure me in terms of historical consistency or internal inconsistency. You can say, well, Alex, with all due respect, you have a U.S. Treasury index, and there is a high yield bond in it. It seems to be inconsistent with your rules. So, yeah. zeroing in and what we're talking about in terms of defining quality helps me put the right controls and checks and measure the fact how many times do I have a bond in the index that doesn't satisfy index criteria. Yeah, no, that's. Uh, I mean, that, that that's fascinating because I think obviously from the outside looking in, you always kind of think that. I mean, as you would, I guess, but you, you kind of, I've always thought, you know, data quality is, is it right or is it wrong? And and evidently it's quite not as, it's not quite it's as simple as that. that. <laughs> okay. So moving on then, I guess in terms of the business of, of Morningstar as a, you know, a business that's business is, is data effectively, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, you have data, you make data available, you make, you know, for, for people to make predictions and insights for investment opportunities, for example. So the, the business of Morningstar is to provide data, right? Whereas, I don't know, McDonald's make burgers, right? They're, they're, they're not a data business. That's not what they do. Just curious, um, but do you feel that operating in a business like that, that is effectively, you know, their business is data, makes it easier for you to to kind of connect business and data together than than other sectors? Right. And and Carl, just one one other uh, comment to, to, to make uh, to your previous point about data being either right or wrong. So, like yeah. another good example is uh, Ferrari, well-known yeah. company. Uh, they're incorporated. They're domiciled in Italy. They're incorporated in the Netherlands, but they do most of their sales in the U.S. So then I have to ask the question, is it a U.S. company, is it an Italian company, or is it a Netherlands company? And both three answers are right. Mm. It depends if you're talking about country of uh, commercial risk, country of incorporation, or country of domicile. So that's where, like, mm. in many cases, unfortunately, in, in uh, data in finance, <laughs> yeah. there are many right answers. It depends what question you're asking. So yeah. anyway, but getting back to your uh, uh, point of uh, are you in the business of doing bur- making burgers or are you in the business of making data? Like, I, I don't necessarily look at it this way. And um, uh, again, just uh, going back to my travel <laughs> adventures, uh, last uh, December, right before the lockdown, so we got lucky. We had a really nice, fun trip to Peru. Uh, a bit of a kicker was like we landed in Cusco. We got off the plane, and Cusco is located 11,500 feet above sea level. So it's pretty high. So um, we unload our luggage, and we go about, uh, you know, beautiful city. By about 5 or 6 o'clock in the afternoon, we all started feeling rather unwell. And that's when I discovered that perhaps I'm actually in the business of breathing oxygen. <laughs> I didn't think about being in the business of breathing oxygen, but when there was not enough of it, I felt very, very unwell. 
my 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 plan for the following morning i had like a, a car waiting for us to take us on a tour and i was thinking should i uh, have the car take us to the tour to the emergency room i mean that was <laughs> luckily it uh, we recovered and it was fine but i think data is exactly the same way it's like you know you're not in the business of breathing oxygen you're not in the business of uh creating or acquiring data like you need it like you know you cannot be in the business in my view uh, this day and age, you cannot be in the business of uh, selling burgers if you're not driving that business with data analysis. So I think it's uh, it's uh, it's more of a organizational philosophy. You're either data-driven or you're not. And whether you're in the data business or some, somewhere else, in my view, it's almost impossible to understand what happens in the world. Who are your clients? Who are your consumers? Who are your markets? What's the next product lineup that you'll have to be focused on? unless you have real uh, good organizational focus around understanding data. Right. Yeah. Great answer. <laughs> um no i mean and, and that's that's absolutely fair enough right because i guess even even if you're in the business of making data you you're still using data to to kind of make that right as or if you make tires yeah. or if you make burgers or if you make shoes or whatever the case may be so now that that makes um to the extent that, that you need sense. data to, to know the truth yeah like you need to know the truth no matter yeah. what business you're you've in. just told us that you know we're never going to know that so uh <laughs> um well <laughs> So last question then, um, before we, we kind of wrap things up. I always ask anyone that's operating at this level, but in terms of the CDO role, what do you think kind of the secret is to making sure that this role adds value and to the business and is a, is a real success? Uh, so I've always been focused on uh, building effective business partnerships. And I think especially for something like CDO, which really sits in the middle of a lot of different business interactions and data interactions. Uh, it's less about building the best technical solution. It's less about coming up with the best model. It's like, you can write the best legislation in the world, unless you get enough votes, that legislation will never become law. So I view my job pretty much as passing legislation through the halls of Congress, yeah. using US political analogy, <laughs> versus just coming up with the best legislation uh, so building partnerships, I spend a lot of time embedding myself into all key business executives' conversations to understand what their plans are, what their issues are, and uh, driving consensus, which is not easy in a complex organization. People generally have very strong views. People have uh, very well-defined objectives, and people are incredibly sensitive to anybody slowing them down. So you always move at the pace of the slowest lane when you're sort of like you know trying to move forward. And to the extent that perhaps data could be that weak link or the slowest lane, people get incredibly sensitive. Again, going about it's like you know, moving fast or moving right. Mm -hmm. uh, they're often at odds. So I view my job as creating those partnerships and alignments and consensus on what the direction of travel is, not tomorrow but a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, like understand the long-term target and work backwards from that. So uh, a bit of a uh, managing by influence and having enough appreciation on both technology side of things and business side of things to connect the two. So in no way I can come anywhere near our engineers and architect to actually give them any advice that will hold water. Yeah. 
it's also very hard for me to give any uh, reasonable advice to investment professionals or research professionals, but I understand enough on both sides to actually make the connection. And that's where I think the value of the, of the role is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I couldn't, uh, couldn't agree more. I think that's where you see the businesses that I guess truly get that and they, the, the people in those roles and the businesses who've, you know, employed those roles ultimately when, when they get that piece right, that's what makes it a huge success, you know, because I think there's many organizations out there that still, you know, hire people at a senior, very senior level in the world of data analytics who are the most senior people within that organization and they're, they're so focused on the technical and, you know, the mm-hmm. technical requirements that the the whole fact of you know it being a business related role and trying to tie that back to the business and its objectives gets gets lost really in all of the kind of the 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 tech noise and and lingo and stuff like that so no perfect um alex thank you very much for joining us i guess before we leave you um if anyone who listens to this wants to kind of reach out after any advice uh, are you open for for people to to kind of reach out to you and if so what's the best way to do so oh oh 100 and uh I, I guess linkedin profile is probably the best way i uh i um always scan it for for new emails and um I, I always respond unless people try to sell me something, then it's uh, probably <laughs> <laughs> might be. <laughs> but but uh, but if uh, if uh, if people want to talk about um, uh, any sort of like data related issues, career or general sort of like, you know, have a, a, a cerebral conversation about any of the topics we covered here. I'm more than grateful and more than happy to to get on the call because th- that's that's how you learn. You talk, you, you understand other people's points of view. So like LinkedIn, and uh, I promise I usually respond back within 20, 24 hours. Cool. Alex, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on and uh, we look forward to speaking to you soon. Kyle, I really appreciate right. it. Thanks a lot All for right. having Cheers. me. Okay. No problem. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.